Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161Q29, The Relationship of Luxe Teaching to Idolatry. From the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair Number 118, March the 24th, 1986. This evening, I have with me one of our Calcedon staff members, Samuel L. Blumenfeld, author of a number of very important works. Most recently, his two books on education is Public Education Necessary and NEA, Trojan Horse and American Education, have been reprinted. During the past year and a half, Sam has been talking all over the United States and, in fact, as far afield as Alaska, where he was with John Lofton uh, last year, uh, May or June. October. October, yes. But the meeting was set up, wasn't it, in uh, May, where they had... uh, as elsewhere, an excellent reception. Sam, it's good to have you with us for this easy chair. And I'd like to have you discuss a subject that uh, when we were together in Chicago recently, you dealt with. Something I feel is very important. The relationship of our education today, the look-say method, John Dewey and the progressive education tradition to idolatry. Yes. Well, first let me uh, simply say that uh, John Dewey, it it was John Dewey's job to create a new curriculum for the public schools uh, which would educate children to become little socialists instead of little individualists and and, believers in God, and uh, they had to devise a way of uh, not only uh, changing American public education so that they could create a a socialist society in the United States, but they also wanted to lower literacy in America, dumb down the American people, so to speak, because in a socialist society you have an elite at the top that does all of the thinking for everybody else. And uh, high literacy produces individuals or with, with sufficient intelligence so that they can stand on their own two feet and think for themselves. And Dewey considered high literacy to be an obstacle to socialism. And so uh, these men, these progressives, decided that they would have to do something to lower literacy in the United States. Now, they had to give the American people the impression that they were educating the children while at the same time dumbing them down. Well, they put their minds to the problem. These men were the world's top psychologists, and they decided to teach children to read English as if it were Chinese, reverting back to a hieroglyphic or an ideographic writing system. And, of course, this fit in very well with with John Dewey's uh, basic ideas about uh, education. For example, he said in his My Pedagogic Creed that, uh, I believe that the image is the great instrument of instruction. And the image, as you know, is, is 
associated with um, idolatry, with uh, the pre-biblical writing. When I when I talk to uh, to audiences, I point out to them that the invention of the alphabet was very crucial to man's spiritual development, because as soon as the alphabet was invented, uh, the scripture began to appear. Now, why did that happen? Well, because man had to wait until the alphabet was invented before the word of God could be put on paper. God communicates with the human race through the word and not through the image. Mm -hmm. God did not give Moses a comic book. <laughs> and, uh, but Moses wrote down the Ten Commandments in alphabetic writing. Now, the alphabet was invented about 2,000 years before the birth of Christ. And prior to that, the forms of writing that existed, the earliest form, of course, was pictography which is uh, uh, symbols which look uh, like the things they represent, mm -hmm. as in the cavemen's uh, drawings. You didn't have to go to school to learn how to read that sort of writing. But then as civilization became more complex, the scribes had to invent little pictures to represent ideas and things uh, that were very difficult to depict. So how did you draw a picture of something that could not be depicted? For example, take uh, a concept like the word accept or accept or demand. How do you draw a picture of those things? You can't. And so they drew little pictures of things that did not look like anything they represented. And they became known as ideographs or Egyptian hieroglyphics. And as you know, it took centuries before scholars were able to decipher decode Egyptian hieroglyphics. They were only able to do that when they discovered the Rosetta Stone. And then you had Egyptian hieroglyphics on one side and then a, a Greek writing on the other, and they were finally able to find out what the ideograph stood for. The important thing about ideographic writing is that these symbols stand for ideas, but not for the spoken word. The spoken word is used to interpret the symbol. And we use them in, in, in modern life, for example, the very familiar one of the, of the circle with the cigarette in it and the slash through it, which could be interpreted as meaning no smoking, thou shalt not smoke, défense de fumer, nicht rauchen, no fumar. In other words, language is used to interpret the symbol. So the symbol is not a precise, accurate means of communication. But the alphabet... The invention of the alphabet was based on a very remarkable discovery, and that is that all of human language is composed of a small number of irreducible speech sounds. And the, the man who made that discovery, I suppose, decided that uh, why not replace all of these thousands and thousands of little pictures and symbols uh, with, a, uh, with a, a very a small number of letters standing for the irreducible speech sounds of the language, and then we'd have a means of transcribing the spoken word into a written form, and then uh, the means of translating it back into spoken form. The most important thing about alphabetic writing is that it is a precise, accurate means of transcribing the spoken word. And thus man, for the first time, had the means of putting God's word on paper in a form that could be reproduced and handed down through the ages so that you have an incredible high degree of accuracy 
for example, in, in, uh, in the Bible, since the, the very first manuscript was put down, they have, found, they have found very little variation. As far back as the oldest text that they can find, and of course, uh, another interesting point is that man is the only species that uses language. Now, why is that? Of course, the behavioral psychologists tell us that man's language is simply verbal behavior, that it is a further development of animal communication. It's a further development of the bark and the meow and the chirp and the growl. But I believe that the reason why man speaks is because God wanted to communicate with his creation. And as you know, Rush, God had conversations with Adam in the Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. And so God gave man the ability to speak because he wanted a means of communicating with him. And of course, after the fall, uh, there was that long period in which a man was... Uh, uh, swept away in sin but then God began his reconciliation uh, with man first with Noah and after the flood of course there was the uh, the covenant made with Noah and then after that the covenant made with Abraham which shows this further desire on God's part for a reconciliation with man and then finally of course uh, uh, sending his son to to this earth to uh, provide salvation for the for all of mankind uh, which is that you might say the final uh, stage of reconciliation that we have but the Bible the 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 invention of the Bible and the use of of the of the alphabet I'm mean, the invention of the alphabet uh, was very crucial in that whole uh, reconciliation how many uh, basic sounds are there in human speech and uh, how many uh, pictographs are there for example in Chinese well there are about 50,000 pictographs in Chinese as you know and uh, as a matter of fact you have to learn at least 5,000 of them in order to read a Chinese newspaper uh, recently, when the United Nations uh, was celebrating its 40th anniversary, they had a TV crew go behind the scenes to uh, take pictures of the translators. And one of them stopped in front of the Chinese translator who was seated in front of a Chinese typewriter. And Rush, how many keys do you think a Chinese typewriter has? I don't know, but more than I could master. Yes, <laughs> 1,000 keys. Oh, my. And it shows, and it's a very cumbersome, difficult system to master. <laughs> no portable Chinese typewriters. No, not at, not at the moment. Uh, I, I imagine the Japanese will invent a portable <laughs> Chinese typewriter. But in any case... I would say there are probably about a hundred sounds that the human that human speech makes if you include all languages. In English, we only have 44 sounds, uh, and I would assume there are some sounds which are simply not used in in English that are used in other languages mm -hmm. around the world. But probably no more than a hundred sounds mm -hmm. in all of human speech. And so it didn't take very, you know, very many symbols to to uh, mm -hmm. to uh, designate those sounds. And since not every language has all those sounds, 
it means that a limited number of uh, letters yes. can convey uh, a language very uh, clearly yes. with a little bit of duplication in some alphabets, as in English. Yes, we have a 26-letter alphabet to stand for 44 sounds. Incidentally, uh, Rush, I always ask the question to every audience, I always ask them if they know how many sounds there are in English, how many irreducible speech sounds. I very seldom ever get a correct answer. And that's because Americans in general have been so poorly educated in the very basics uh, of their own uh, reading system. You know, they don't even know how many sounds there are in English. They all know there are 26 letters. Now, the reason why we have a 26-letter alphabet, of course, is because the, when the Romans conquered the British Isles, they imposed the Latin alphabet on the Anglo-Saxon-speaking peoples. And so this has created some problems for, for English-speaking people, but they're not insurmountable problems. In other words, some of our letters stand for more than one sound. However, there are alphabets which are, have a perfect uh, letter and... Uh, 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 sound co um, mm -hmm. correlation as I believe Armenian does yes. uh, which is a uh, from what you told me Rush was uh, was very um, uh, purposefully uh, yes. created to do exactly that you mm -hmm. see and there have been attempts to create a new English alphabet but they've never succeeded because uh, by creating a new alphabet and a new uh, writing system for English, uh, we would uh, produce uh, readers incapable of reading the hundreds and hundreds of years of literature that have been written in the old orthography, in the traditional orthography. Well, it is interesting how the alphabet uh, is less and less known yes. in the schools. A week ago, uh, or less than a week ago, Dorothy and I were in the home of some very dear friends, very strong supporters of Calcedon. The uh, man of the house, the young man, was an outstanding student at the university and on the dean's list. But he said it was not until he left the university that he learned how to use a dictionary because he never knew the alphabet. Yes. Mastering a card file was a major problem for him. And of course, I encountered this when I was a graduate student at Berkeley because the newer, younger students coming in did not know how to use a card file because they had never learned the alphabet. Now, I think it is very significant, and of course I'm just stating what I've heard you say. The Bible calls Christ the Word of God. Yes. He expresses God. And we are given the Word of God, the Bible, as against images of God. We're forbidden in the Ten Commandments to try to represent God in images. But as Dewey said in that quote you read, uh, he says, Yes. Let me, uh, I believe that the image is the great instrument of instruction. Yes. I think it was you who cited this, but I've heard many such illustrations that for these, uh, look, say, progressive educators, a child reading 
a word P-O-N-Y, although he doesn't read it P-O-N-Y, is told that's a pony. But if he reads it as horse, it's correct in the eyes of the teacher. Yes, because he's seeing the picture. And it's interesting that that Dewey and his fellow uh, psychologists, behavioral psychologists, should have uh, even believed that. I, I don't really believe that Dewey believed that the image is the great instrument of instruction. We know that it is the word. Mm-hmm. Man learns by the word, through language, and not the image. The image, as a matter of fact, is a very poor imitation. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting that in, in, in St. John, where it says, in the beginning was the word, mm-hmm. and the word was with God, and the word was God, you have the equation of God and the word. Mm-hmm. And I interpret it as meaning, and, and you correct me if I'm wrong, Rush, uh, as meaning that the that the word is very important yes. to God, and that is the means of His creation. Because how did uh, how did God create the universe? He He didn't hire a contractor, <laughs> <laughs> and He didn't draw a set of blueprints. He simply said, "Let there be light," mm-hmm. and in those words was creation yes and of course man's uh, man's use of language uh, has a similar kind of power in prayer because prayer is man's means of of uh, reaching god man does not draw pictures he does not send god mm-hmm. little pictures he speaks to god directly through uh through the voice through the word and the word reaches god just as radio signals reach human beings it's interesting when, uh, if you see a radio on a table and it's shut off, it won't receive any words. You've got to turn it on and then you receive the word. To me, one of the most uh, interesting things in the history of this century is the fact that uh, because we've given the image priority over the word, It is the avant-garde modern artist who sees himself as the true prophet of the modern age. Yes. And it was uh, one such painter whose famous painting, Nude uh, Descending a Staircase, an abstract, Marcel Duchamp. That's right. Who finally felt that there was only one way to eliminate God and meaning from the world. That was to create a language in which there was no propositional truth, because our words are propositional. They denote a particular meaning. And he said all current languages, because they have propositional truth in every word, point to God, and we've got to have a non-theistic language. But that would mean a language in which no word meant anything. And he kept trying for years and years, spent the latter part of his life trying to find out how he could have a substitute for a language which pointed to God. And he finally had to confess failure, spent the rest of his life playing chess. He had the means to live. So I think that's an eloquent witness to the centrality of language because Duchamp saw the fact that words point to meaning, 
They tell us the world is a world of meaning, that it is God created, that God has written propositional truth into all creation. Yes. Now, the interesting thing about the, about the look-say method is also, also is that uh, they use the techniques of Pavlovian conditioning to teach oh, children to point. read uh, the Dick and Jane books. The constant repetition and the use of these rather silly sentences like see, uh, see, spot, run, and see, see, and look, look, and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. And of course, when you're teaching children to read as, as if they're dogs, mm -hmm. you're going to get some very strange results because children are not dogs. You see, Rush, when a dog enters the first grade, all that a dog, dog can say is arf, arf. <laughs> and... Um, and let us assume that that dog is then socially promoted in our progressive school and comes to the end of his career in, at the end, in, at, in the 12th grade and holds out his paw for a diploma. What can he say when he looks up into the principal's eyes? But arf, arf. But a human child comes to school at the, at, in the first grade with a speaking vocabulary between 5,000 and 35,000 words. Children begin teaching themselves to speak their own language virtually at birth. I mean, very soon after they're born, they have this innate capacity to uh, use sound symbols, to integrate sound symbols. And you find very young children can understand about God and religion. Yes. At the earliest time in life, they can grasp these concepts. As a matter of fact, in the earliest primas that were used in this country when they were teaching the alphabet, the first letter A was taught, in Adam's fall we sinned yes. all, which is much more eloquent and full of meaning than see, spot, run. Yes. But you see what they've done in the teaching of reading, they've removed all of that. And it's to the credit of the Puritans that they knew that they could teach these things to a four-year-old or a five-year-old. As a matter of fact, Sam, the mother would very commonly teach the child the alphabet at about two or three by tracing the letters uh, in the uh, hearth, in the ashes. Uh-huh. And as late as about 1850, some years ago, at the Stanford Education uh, Library, I found manuals recommending that a mother teach her child to read okay. before the child started school. But Rush, you know, that was common, that mm -hmm. uh, the child had to know how to read before he went to school. Yes. It was expected that a child would know how to read and write before entering school. And it was only when the Unitarians took over that they demanded that the schools also embrace the primary subjects. Mm -hmm. That was considered uh, something for the home to take care of. Mm -hmm. And that came later with the public school movement, this extension of the public school into the primary grades. One of the things that interests me, and a professor of philology when I was a student told me this was not uncommon, was something that occurred in my own family. Uh, two of my cousins, Richard and Paul, are identical twins. And uh, from before the time they l learned to speak at 
somewhere around the age of two, they had developed their own language mm -hmm. and would communicate one to the other, and they continued that language for a purely private communication until they were well along in school. It was their personal language, and I understand that is not uncommon with twins who are very close, which indicates how at an age we don't realize because we're created in the image of God, we have the capacity for speaking, for yes. uh, verbalizing our thoughts. Yes, that makes a big difference. But the, the other important thing about the look-say method is not only does it promote idolatry and, and uh, an idolatrous view of, of the world, but also it promotes functional illiteracy. It yes. creates, it destroys the the youngster's ability to use his mind because when that that method was created to destroy a child's ability to develop language not only reading and i'm sure that, that uh, you're aware that many of these youngsters who have these reading problems have very poor vocabularies they can barely yes. they, they, they can barely uh, you know uh, uh, express themselves and that's because this this method of of teaching reading uh, produces learning blockages uh, that deliberately retard not only the child's growth but sometimes the, ch the child will even uh, go backwards uh, to an earlier period in his life and so they're, they're, they are uh, thwarted and uh, uh, I would say they're mentally destroyed they're crippled for yes. life crippled by this technique and uh, I, I have I've encountered adults who come to me, you know, after after I've lectured and come up to me and tell me that they are victims of this and they want to be able to change. And 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 the thing that you find out about them is that they've uh, they've suffered all their lives with this uh, horrible handicap, not having been taught to read correctly. And yet our schools keep doing it, even today. Uh, and. Uh, for example, here in California, uh, in 1981, the uh, uh, the school book, uh, the textbook adoption committee adopted all look-say textbooks for all of the elementary schools of California, guaranteeing that millions of children would become uh, learning disabled well into the 21st century. Well, the only hope, of course, is the Christian school and the homeschool movement yes. that's against this. I think one of the problems it is creating among the many is that since we are created in the image of God and we are created to speak, to talk with God, to communicate with Him, it limits our ability to function as human beings one with another and also with God. Yes. It uh, means that today verbal crutches, you know, you see, That's right. uh, are increasingly common as people try to substitute something for verbalization Yes, because they cannot verbalize. I think one of the disasters here, too, that I've seen in my lifetime when 
I was in school first, one of the most uh, marvelous things was that our generation, Dorothy's and mine, grew up with a feel for the richness, the variety, and the music of language so that uh, we knew poetry. We loved it. Within five or six years, that was gone in the schools. Oh, yes. And uh, now, poetry, to all practical intent, is dead. Yes. Dorothy, to this day, can uh, recite uh, a great deal of poetry, remember entire sections of uh, Lowell's The Vision of Sir Lon Fall, which was still mm -hmm. taught when we were in school because we were in more rural setting. Uh, at least I was, and this sort of th thing uh, still more or less governed our education. Books like Mill on the Foss uh, yes. and all were read in grade school as well as Dickens. And that older literature, which while sometimes very uh, slow going because the authors were never in a hurry, respected the cadence of language. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, the beauty of language yes. was very important. Well, to continue, Sam, with this matter of the loss of uh, beauty, of cadence, of appeal yes. in language, language as uh, itself a gift, one of the things that... Uh, I find most interesting is this. When I was a boy in school in the early years, one of the problems that uh, the teachers faced, and one that was a problem with me at home, was that when I got a new textbook, it was so interesting that I went home and uh, I spent uh, the rest of the evening into the night reading it. And at first the uh, kerosene lamp was blown and taken out of the room so I couldn't read. And later on, the light bulb was taken out. And I was not alone in that. That was commonplace when I went to school because the textbook was so interesting. Oh, yes, yes. As a matter of fact, I remember as, as a youngster in, in New York City in the early 30s, I fell in love with Paradise Lost by mm -hmm. Milton, with all the great English poets, and of course the, the Bible, you know, the King James Language. I don't know of any other uh, work in the English language that is quite as beautiful and full of incredible content great spiritual content as the Bible and yet isn't it interesting that in public schools today not only is the Bible not read or forbidden to be read but the kind of books that children are given to read today are so inane so poorly written uh, they are written by professors of education who have to uh, have a you know certain number of uh, mm -hmm. social qualities to the mm -hmm. to the book uh, to their text. 
there no no real learning takes place uh, uh, Russian any of these books any longer there's nothing of, of any use in the content well even then they feel the material is too advanced for the children and they're continually simplifying it and yet when I started school there was no one in my class that I can recall except possibly one boy whose language at home was English. They were predominantly Scandinavian uh, and uh, a scattering of others. We all had a home language that was not English. Mm -hmm. In my cousin's school, because he lived a mile further out, we walked into town to school. There were no school buses until much later. He walked two miles to a two-teacher, two-room uh, school, grades of one through eight. And in that school, again, no one whose uh, mother tongue was English. They studied Milton before they had finished the eighth grade. They read Mill on the Floss and Adam Bede. Mm -hmm. And they were introduced to Shakespeare. All that in grade yes. school. Yes. And that was the same in New York City, uh, Rush, because all of my friends in school came from the same kind of background as I did, from the homes of, of Jewish immigrants, mm -hmm. where the language at home was Yiddish. And yet all of us took to English like ducks to water. <laughs> I mean, we loved it. Yes. We loved the language. We loved the poetry. And and it became our language, yes. you know. And we loved developing vocabulary. As a matter of fact, it was uh, everyone, uh, you know, we, we strove to develop the best vocabularies possible, while today young people as writers are told to simplify yes. their writing. I've been interviewed by young journalists who've told me that they are required by their newspapers to write simple sentences and to simplify their uh, use of vocabulary, they're told, well, make it um, interesting for college graduates, but at a level which anyone can read, that a, uh, uh, that a dropout can understand. And uh, what this has done to written English in, in American uh, magazines and newspapers, that now we have a kind of generic English that has no style whatever. Time, Newsweek, U.S. Mm -hmm. News, they all sound like they've been written by the same person. Yeah. And uh, we have lost a tremendous amount when it comes to uh, the beauty of language uh, in America. Well, and a lot of meaning, too. I'll very often read a paragraph in some newspaper story to Dorothy and tell her, what does this mean? What <laughs> is the reporter trying to yeah. say? It will be so garbled. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's usually because uh, they're, they're, they have such a poor grasp of the language mm -hmm. themselves, and they have no sense of absolutes, you see. They have no sense of truth. They're sort of in a world of relativity, you know. Everything is relative because one of the things I, I found out about look-say readers, Rush, and in, in, in tutoring them and trying to, to uh, repair the damage is that a look-say reader will leave out words that are there, will put in words that are not there, mm -hmm. 
will guess at words that he has never seen before and uh, will will misread, constantly misread uh, words that he thinks he knows uh, the meaning of. And so you get highly inaccurate readers. You get people who really have a very uh, uh, inaccurate view of what the written language is like. They think it's something that you can edit as you go along, that you can write yourself. As a matter of fact, one of the earliest um, uh, writers on this subject, Edmund Burke Huey, who wrote uh, the book The Psychology and Pedagogy of Reading in 1908, in which he tried to show the superiority of the Luxe method, admitted that children would become inaccurate readers. But he said that was all right. He said that um, that, was, that was part of the reading process, was to interpret what was on mm. the page. In other words, it wasn't important what the writer had to say, but what the reader thought that the writer had to say. And in fact, Kenneth, Professor Kenneth Goodman, who became the president of the International Reading Association, he defined reading as a psycholinguistic guessing game. So you see they're destroying meaning. Yeah. That's, that's, that is the purpose of all of this. Russia is to destroy meaning. And we shouldn't be surprised at this because they deny there is a meaning in the universe. I recall that one of the most uh, intense explosions I ever saw on any platform I was ever a part of was at one uh, particular conference where I was one of several speakers and we were on a panel and in the course of the discussion and I don't remember the subject this was apart from our speeches I made the statement that we had to view the universe as a universe with everything having a common strand of meaning because it was created by God and therefore even though uh, not necessarily intelligible to us at all points totally rational because it came from the mind of God and had a coherence and this one prominent uh, professor at a graduate uh, university uh, nationally known came boiling out of his chair in anger that uh, this was uh, totally unacceptable to assert the uh, rationality of the universe there was only a thin edge of rationality and meaning in all the universe and it was only in the mind of man everything apart was totally irrational yes. now naturally they're going to convert even man into irrationality and reading into irrationality and meaninglessness yes yes in fact what Dewey Dewey said that the purpose of speech of language was simple simply social that, that the, the function of speech was social, that it had nothing to do with a relationship with God. It was simply a relationship of man to man. And since I suppose man is so completely undependable, mm -hmm. you know, and so fickle, then anything that man says to uh, man does not have quite the same power that, of what God says to man or man says to God. 
And I think that the important point is that when God speaks, uh, you have to be precise and you have to be accurate in, in understanding what God means and what God says. While uh, to the humanists, if you're going to destroy God, the best way to do it is by destroying language. Uh, because then you destroy man's means of communicating with God. And I know that Dewey and, and his colleagues were, were determined to destroy Christianity. Yes. They were not indifferent to God. They were atheists, but they were not indifferent atheists. They, were, they had set out on a messianic mission to not only destroy Christianity and substitute a new religion, a new humanist religion, man-centered religion, but also they were going to destroy capitalism, individualism, uh, and the, the entire structure of our society and substitute in its place socialism, collectivism, and atheism. So they had a, a very, very uh, uh, far-reaching program, and the use and the destruction of language was a very important part of it. Uh, and also they proceeded to do the same thing with mathematics, as you know, yes. in their uh, creation of the new math and of destroying the uh, ability of the youngster to to uh, deal with numbers and quantities because there also you're dealing with absolutes. Uh, you're not dealing with relativity, although when you get into into uh, number theory or set theory, then you get into all kinds of problems. And uh, set theory was invented by a German mathematician who died in an insane asylum. And of course, set theory was what was supposed to replace the teaching of arithmetic. You know, one of the uh, founders, one aspect of the new math, used to advocate it, and I have a series of quotations from the man in my philosophy of the Christian curriculum. But he would tell teachers, this was in Belgium, that uh, the beauty of the new mathematics was that it enabled everyone to be their own creator and to play God. I recall vividly when uh, our daughter Martha was exposed to the new math, unfortunately in a Christian school where she was for a year or so. And uh, the explosion that took place when she came home with a problem and asked her mother, Dorothy, uh, to explain the problem to her and to help her solve it. And it began, if five is greater than eight. And Dorothy said, stop right there. Five is never greater than eight. And don't you let them ever teach you that. But you see, it's destroying meaning. It says, everything can be reversed. You play God. You can alter meaning. Therefore, ultimately, everything becomes meaningless. Yes, yes. And, of course, man relies on symbols. I mean, the fact that we, that we use sound symbols, that we develop sound. It's such an innate part of our being mm -hmm. to develop these sound symbols. And every child development at such an early age means that we, we 
we not only seek meaning, we are a, a meaning-seeking creation. Mm-hmm. We seek meaning. That's what makes us different from the cats and the birds. They're not asking what is the meaning of life. You no. Know? But man does. Man starts asking questions and seeking meaning and figuring out meaning on his own from the mm-hmm. age of practically at birth. Yes. Yes, that's a very good point. Animals uh, have more intelligence than people often recognize, but the intelligence is directed only in one way, serving their wants and needs. That's right. We had a German shepherd, uh, when I say we, Dorothy did. It was Dorothy's dog, emphatically. And... uh, the dog was a problem because Dorothy would talk to it all the time when I was gone. She was alone, and the dog was good company. Juno was her name. And it got so that when we were going to go out to the pool and swim, uh, Juno knew immediately what we were talking about. And uh, we had to resort to spelling because if we mentioned swimming or pool or any word connected with it (laughs) she'd be nagging us to go for sure Uh so we resorted to spelling but soon she figured that out too and it was the same with taking a walk she was there at the door and running and trying to drag us to the door to take her for a walk but that was the sole limit yes the intelligence was totally directed in terms of wants, needs, an incapacity, of course, in animals to ascend above that level of their physical requirements and wants. But, of course, that's what the behavioral psychologists want to reduce man to. Exactly. That's what B.F. Skinner and the others, that's why they've conducted all of their experiments on animals. And Pavlov as well. Yes, Pavlov, well, Thorndike did his experiments with chickens. Uh, Pavlov with dogs, uh, Skinner with rats. And, of course, B.F. Skinner considered uh, human beings and rats not to be too different. And and that's their emphasis, is that human beings are animals. Yes, but a dog can be very happy if its basic physical needs are supplied, but a man can't be. Men who have everything physically and materially regularly commit suicide because meaning is gone in their lives. Yes, that's, that's the point. And they are not only destroying meaning in, in just in the use of symbols, but meaning in everything. They've destroyed history for the mm-hmm. American youngster uh, through social studies. They've broken up history in such a form that no youngster can, very few youngsters in America can even recite the, the wars, the American wars in chronological order. Mm-hmm. They've destroyed chronology. Uh, they mix up, uh, you know, they'll teach the child about the Eskimos and then the Indians mm-hmm. and then uh, the Chinese and then uh, Columbus and then the Civil War and then they'll go back uh, two centuries. They go ahead three centuries. They jump from culture to culture. And the youngster is so confused. He has yeah. no idea what happened when. Uh, this is all part of the same uh, conspiracy to destroy intelligence and destroy meaning. So that today's youngsters 
are on the level of the animals today. Mm-hmm. All they are uh, doing now is simply satisfying their basic needs, you know, for a hamburger, for mm-hmm. pizza, uh, for that sort of thing. But today's youngsters don't, they don't, uh, they don't uh, think, uh, they don't argue, they don't, have you ever heard them have philosophical conversations? No. <laughs> they don't anymore. They're, they're back to, to the, they've been reduced to the animal level by our education system. Yes. And it's all quite deliberate because uh, the men who have, concocted all of this with the world leading psychologists. Yes. These are men who have, who have used animal training techniques, extrapolated those techniques and applied them to the training of human beings. And they even use it in the textbooks. They use stimulus response. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you read any, any curriculum today put out by a State Department of Education, they talk constantly about stimuli. Yes. You see. And people wonder why our city streets have been turned into jungles and our youth into wild animals. Well, that's right, because they are. They've been told they're animals. Mm-hmm. You see, when you tell a child that uh, uh, that there is no God, uh, that he's the product of evolution, mm-hmm. and that there is no meaning to life except the satisfaction of of animal appetites, uh, then what do you do? What do you create? You do create a human animal. You create an animal. In the past ten years, um, I think somewhere in the past five or six years, a state educator in New Jersey said that uh, one of the problems in contemporary education was that public education had deprived Uh, youth of the right kind of role models and he said our modern culture says that we are apes advanced apes so he said uh, uh, since we refer to man and a book he said which has been widely used in our schools is the naked ape Mm -hmm. he said uh, we should not be surprised that they grow up and act like wild apes. Well, you're right. As a matter of fact, it was Thorndike who, who said that, well, well, he said that we were a domesticated animal. You know? <laughs> that we were, and, he, and he has a very interesting paragraph in Animal Intelligence. As a matter of fact, it's the final paragraph of his book written in 1911. And he says, nowhere more truly than in his mental capacities is man a part of nature His instincts, that is, his inborn tendencies to feel and act in certain ways, show throughout marks of kinship with the lower animals, especially with our nearest relatives physically, the monkeys. His sense powers show no new creation. His intellect we have seen to be a simple, though extended, variation from the general animal sort. This again is presaged by the similar variation in the case of the monkeys. Amongst the minds of animals, that of man leads, not as a demigod from another planet, but as a king from the same race. So in other words, we're simply the king of the animals, mm-hmm. according to, uh, to Thorndike. 
and some of them would have been ready to say that we're a very poor king that ought to be dethroned. <laughs> well, I think we're the only animal that uh, practices abortion, mm-hmm. that kills our own young in such horrendous numbers. Uh, and usually when, when we equate human beings with animals, for example, if they do evil, like we will sort of say that Hitler was an animal mm-hmm. or Stalin was an animal. The point is they were not animals. They were human beings, you yeah. see, who fell from grace and were completely living a life of sin, uh, who, have, who have discarded God and are letting their own sinful natures uh, express themselves to the fullest extent possible, you see. That's what ha- that's, that's, I believe, uh, Rush, perhaps that's even the greatest proof that God exists is the fact that when man, uh, when man uh, uh, discards God, he becomes so satanic. Yes. The animals don't become satanic in any way, shape, or form, do they? No. They just behave in their ordinary uh, ways they're, 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 uh, whatever they do is a matter of instinct yes. but when man gives up God he becomes something entirely different he becomes uh, he becomes that personification of Satan our time is beginning to run out Sam but uh, before ending I'd like to call attention to these two books of yours which have just been reprinted In fact, the one is Public Education Necessary, which even Fortune magazine called Brilliant Revisionist History. Uh, Got you on the Today Show last week here in Sacramento, or nearby in Sacramento, with uh, former Secretary of Education Bell. Yes. Yes, that was a lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently what happened was that the members of the uh, Reagan administration had shoved this book in front of him and wanted him to read it, thinking that he might become a conservative as a a result. (laughs) But he simply considered the whole thing off the wall and and told the, uh, the press that he considered the writer to be a member of the lunatic fringe. But you know, the reason why they, they will constantly uh, designate us as members of lunatic fringe or radical nuts rush is because they want to put us out of the pale yes. of discussion. In other words, you don't argue with a lunatic. You don't take anything a lunatic says seriously. And so if they call us members of the lunatic fringe, well, then they don't have to discuss our ideas or our books. Well, after the program was over, I think perhaps he looked... A yes. little uh, closer to that fringe. <laughs> yes, I, I think that uh, I got the better of him. Mm-hmm. He, he was very weak and uh, offered really nothing of any uh, substance to the American public and certainly the parents uh, who want to know what to do when it comes to education got very little advice from him. The only thing that he could tell them to do was to uh, you know, patronize the public schools and help out uh, which is what parents have been trying to do for the last 30 years with not much success. Well, could you tell our listeners uh, where they can get these books from and at what price? Well, they can get either book from by calling an 800 number in uh, Arizona. That's 1-800-528-0559. That's one 800 
528-0559. Now, both books are 9.95 each, and uh, they can order them by using their uh, credit cards by and phone. These two books are Is Public Education Necessary? and NEA Trojan Horse in American Education. But there are two others that uh, I think they'd be interested in. Uh, would you tell them about the other two that are available from yes. the same place? Uh, how to Tutor. Uh, I wrote that book back in the 70s because uh, I wanted parents to have a means of teaching their children the three R's at home. And a lot of homeschooling uh, parents are now using that book. The How to Tutor book is available for seven ninety five. And Alpha Phonics, a primer for beginning readers, uh, is a book I wrote to, to permit anyone to teach anybody to read, that is, a child or an adult. There are so many uh, functionally illiterate adults uh, who need tutoring, and I wrote that book to permit them, uh, anyone, any tutor, to have a means to uh, teach anyone to read. And that book is available for 19.95, and it's to be used directly with the student. If you want to order by mail and send your check, uh, just order from Research Publications, P.O. Box 39850, 39850, Phoenix, Arizona, 85069, 85069. I think you'll find uh, them very worthwhile. Well, Sam, it's been a delight uh, to discuss these matters with you and I think it's been very important because your point that modern education is a form of idolatry needs to be recognized that uh, it is a sin to subject your child to a, a schooling which is alien to everything we as Christians believe that says it is the image the idol not the word yes. that is central. Is there any final comment you'd like to make, Sam? Well, the 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 uh, I suppose the encouraging thing, uh, Rush, is that there are so many Christian schools that are being created now that uh, are teaching reading well phonetically, and of course homeschooling. And the parents can do something about this. They can remove their children from the public schools. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to discuss these things, and God bless you all as you think these things over and apply them in your lives. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by ChristRules.com.